0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Good evening to you all, welcome to The Magic Flute. Uh, How many of you are seeing The Magic Flute for the first time here? Excellent, all right, I'm gonna ask you a bunch of questions now. How many of you are seeing, how many are you seeing an opera for the first time? Ah, uh, there's not enough of you. All right, well, we're going to see you, we hope to see you again. Uh, and how many of you have seen this production of The Magic Flute? Okay, so this is the third time we are doing it. It's so popular and uh, loved that uh, it just keeps coming back. So um, I will explain to you um, a little later why this opera, why this production is not typical and why it's different from uh, traditional magic flutes, but I want to wait for all those latecomers who are going to come here, wandering in until there are no more seats. But you're the early birds, so I'll treat you to some stuff that they're going to miss. And all, all that you do know, it's his last, it's his, it's his final opera, and uh, you do know that it is probably one of the most beloved works in the in the world. It is um, technically not an opera; it was written as a popular piece of theater. It is called in German a Singspiel. What's a singspiel? I hear you cry. Zingen, uh, as you might guess in German, means to sing, and spielen means to play, also as in a play. So a piece of Schauspiel is a theater piece, and this is a singspiel. That means it's a play which is also sung. And it was a popular form. But, uh Mozart had already written uh, another one, which is which I personally love very much. It's called the Abduction from the Seraglio. Did some of you? Did some of you see it? Who saw it when we, when we did? Did you like it? Good. Well, okay. Maybe I'll put that down the list. It should come back. Yes, it's a wonderful opera. It's very funny. So the Zingspiel ha- is different from an opera. Opera in that it has spoken dialogues, and those spoken dialogues alternate with the pieces that are sung, where the orchestra plays. Now. Um, in many cases, and I'll, I'll give you some examples later, you go to an Italian opera from the period, Mozart, and you'll notice that the orchestra plays uh, with the singers for a while, and then the orchestra stops, and then there are these things called recitativi in Italian, recitatives, which are still music. There's a harpsichord or a or a pianoforte, which is the old form of the piano, um, that, that accompany that and help that along, but there's always music, it never stops. Um, This is distinct because uh, when the orchestra stops, the music stops, and then there are dialogues in between. Now, this thick book here is the original text. Um, I think that it must have taken five hours to do this because there is so much dialogue that you'd be very, very, very surprised. Nobody ever does that. In fact, they mostly try to shorten the dialogue to get it over with as fast as possible. Enough to tell the story, um, but not enough to get up to get wordy and excessive. Now, um, before I start, I want to remind you, always I do it every time. It's not self-promotion. I don't earn any money, but I always write an article for you. There is one, a short version in your programs, um, that's to be taken home tonight and uh, read it when you're going to sleep because it will put you to sleep. Uh, that's the short version. If you want the long-full version, you have to battle and fight your way through our website to see if you can find it. It's sort of like um, what we're going to see tonight, we're going to see a trial, Trials of Fire and Water. The trials are, can you find the article in, on the website? I, I can't. You can because I have actually found it once. Um, But it's there, and that's the long version. Um, uh, I'll give you a few excerpts just to give you an idea. Um, It's all about Mozart and the Enlightenment, and a whole lot of questions um, about this work, because this is a work that it is very difficult sometimes to know did he mean something by it, or did he mean absolutely nothing? And he just wanted to write a funny story, very amusing, with a little wisdom. Uh, In any case, you have. One, as a producer of the magic flute, you have a wide variety of possibilities. In fact, you can create possibilities because it is a fairy tale. And so with a fairy tale, the characters, the situations are deeply symbolic and one can choose different ways to view them. Um, I wrote this, this is the opening, opening, uh, opening paragraph. Mozart's The Magic Flute is amongst the world's most popular and beloved operas, written by one of its most adored composers. A pseudo fairy tale—that's my term for it. Um, it's invented mythology. Uh, mythology appeals to children and adults, amateur and professional musicians, philosophers and writers, casual opera goers and diehard fans. It is immediately accessible to children, yet sufficiently profound and sophisticated to have commanded the attention of great thinkers and musicians for more than two centuries. All true. Beethoven loved it. He considered it Mozart's greatest work. Um, now you might know that Mozart became a Freemason. Freemason, a uh, big intellectual spiritual movement um, was really um, was uh, taking hold in many places in Europe, including Vienna, where he lived, of course. Um, it still exists to this day. There are. Uh, I, I know that if you are a mason here and you're with us tonight, you will not tell us, uh, because it is a discreet society. Um, there are many symbols and things we don't understand. I don't understand because I'm not a mason. Books have been written about this to say to explain uh, the if there are Masonic symbols uh, in this opera because Mozart was deeply involved in, in, in w- with the Freemasons um, I think there are some I'm guessing there are some and I'm, some have been identified and I'm going to at least pass them on to you are we right about it we don't really know but at the same time he was uh, a Roman Catholic and spent his life as a believer so he was a Roman Catholic Freemason or if you want to turn that around he was a Freemason, who happened to be a Roman Catholic because you can see strands of both uh, both uh, thinking um, in his uh, late operas but uh, uh, this is predominantly Freemason okay now I got my first acquaintance um, with the magic flute on dress rehearsal we had a thousand young people in uh, to a and they were screaming and they loved it shouting and screaming as, as only 15 16 17 year olds and 10-year-olds can do, but it was wonderful. It was thrilling to me because it brought me back to my first magic flute. The first magic flute I saw, I was actually in it. And as you may know, at the beginning of the opera, uh, our hero, the prince, whose name is Tamino, is running away from a dragon. And I was one th- part of that dragon. My older brother and my best friend were the other two parts. And we slithered onto the stage at the beginning of the opera, got chopped up into three parts, and then each one of us slithered off. That was my debut in the magic flute. So <laughs> I um, was 15 at the time, and I fell in love with it, of course. Uh, Eleven years later, um, I conducted it um, and it, in fact, was the opera in which I made my debut at the Metropolitan Opera um, in 1976. I subsequently conducted it in London at the Royal Opera House and Garden. Um, I made a movie with Kenneth Branagh. If you want to find that, you can. Um, I conducted it with the Chicago Symphony. And here at LA Opera, this is the fourth time I'm actually doing it. I haven't done any opera that many times here in LA. 2009, 2013, 2016, and now 2019. Um, I've already passed uh, 50 performances. This is the 56th performance in my life. I'm hoping, um, yes, shortly I'll conduct it in Vienna, and I think I'll make it to 60 at that time, so. um, Now, the opera was, um, was premiered on September the 30th, remember that date, 1791. Mozart died on December the 5th, 1791, which means two months and several days after he premiered this opera. Last year, how many of you saw La Clemenza di Tito? Good. Uh, he f- that opened on September the 6th, which means that they opened three weeks apart. He created two very, very divergent works in, and opened them both up in three weeks. Left to Come, a clarinet concerto in October, and of course, The Requiem, which he did not complete. Uh, and unle- had to be finished after his death. Um, so some people consider the Magic Flute his last testament, so to speak, and it is a philosophic work. And there's a lot of philosophy in it, and we'll touch on that shortly. Now I want to orientate you toward the, the personalities and the characters. If you know the opera, bear with me. Um, so we have good and evil, as we do in most in most fairy tale types, and um, this is about enlightenment, it's about spiritual and intellectual enlightenment, and the Enlightenment with a capital E which, of course, is an intellectual, uh, philosophical movement that is um, very much alive in the last decade of the 1700s. Our forefathers who wrote the uh, Declaration of Independence and worked on the Constitution were heavily influenced by the Enlightenment. Um, So we have, on the one hand, one realm over here, which is I'm going to call it, a realm that is Evil, a little bit, not completely, a little bit evil. And then we have a realm over here which is wise and good and wants you to be wise and good. Those are, that is the temple. Now, it is a thinly disguised, veiled, Masonic temple. In other words, this is where you would go as a Mason to learn what you needed to do to become an enlightened human being. Well, let's start with the wicked one over here. Now, there's always somebody bad, right? And it's often poor mother and stepmothers. The Queen of the Night. okay? The Queen of the Night is bad. But was she always bad? No. But she's come ba- be bad. We're not quite sure why. And in fact, we're not quite sure that Mozart intended her to be bad when he started the opera. There's a whole theory that he and his uh, the writer, the man whose name was Schikaneder, Emanuel Schikaneder, who was the first person to be who to sing the character of Papageno. More on him in a moment. Um, it was his theater, and so Mozart, of course, had to collaborate with him. And they may have changed their mind midway and decided, you know what, we need the queen to be bad, so we're going to change her. So you're going to be pretty sympathetic with her in Act One, but you're going to see her turn into a kind of a devil in the second half now there's another way to interpret that uh, that she's bad all along but she just acts as if she's good back but you're going to decide later all right so we have the queen she has a daughter her name is Pamina that's a made-up name uh, and Pamina has been stolen from her and it lives in this temple and she wants somebody to go save her daughter and get her back that's pretty pretty normal any mother would. Now, she has three ladies who work for her, and we're going to see them right at the beginning of the opera. And uh, then there's one other guy who works uh, in her realm, and he is a fascinating character. He is a bird catcher. His name is Papageno. Papapapapapageno is supposed to sound like a bird. And he is a delightful individual. In fact, he wins the hearts of every audience always. Now, Papageno just goes about his business, catching birds, and he sells them uh, to the three ladies who bring them back to the Queen of the Night. That's what he does. He's a very simple guy. And he's going to start the opera living in the realm of the Queen of the Night. But fate is going to bring him uh, not unwillingly, but certainly not understanding that he's going to go into that temple where he's supposed to get wise and become enlightened. Uh, so Papageno is going to be going to have a his transit. He's going to have a transition sort of. So the opera begins with an event: a, a, a prince, Tamino, also a made-up name has run into this land. He doesn't know where he is. The first thing he finds is a dragon. He's frightened, so frightened, that he faints. Um, this fa- When he wakes up, he finds Papageno, and he finds, eventually, the three ladies. Uh, the three ladies are going to say, we have a mission for you. You're going to meet the Queen of the Night. He hasn't a clue who the Queen of the Night is, but he meets her, and he realizes that she's pretty powerful. And she says... Someone has taken my beautiful daughter away from me, and I want you to go save her. And if you save her, what's going to happen? Same thing happens every fairy, fairy tale. You can marry her, and you can live happily every, ever after. So Tamino, being young and fervent, and also, I might add, a tenor, uh, <laughs> this ap- appeals to him. So he's going to, go, he's going to go right away on this request. She says there's an evil man in that temple. Now, let's get a look at the temple. The head of the temple is a man named Zarastro. Um, he is a wise man, um, uh, and he, that name, of course, is very similar and is meant to be similar to Zarathustra, because he uh, embodies a lot of the Zoroastrian concepts of Zoroastra, which the which the Masonic lodges um, were very interested in. So he's over here, and he's he's big deal. Then there's he has a speaker, a man who. Uh, greets presumably strangers who come to the temple. You're not going to hear see, hear, see the speaker in this production, you know, but you're going to hear his massive voice coming over a, mi- uh, a large mic- uh, microphone. Now, he has a, um, a bad servant whose name is Monostatos. Uh, Monostatos, he who stands alone, is also a made-up name. Now, here we get into something that is a little bit, um, uh, it's... It's it's not nice. Um, he is a he's a Moor. He's from North North Africa, which means he is a black person. The Viennese and Austria was a highly deeply racist society and they thought nothing of putting a black character on as a comic character or a wicked character now Monositos is a sort of a combination he's wicked but he also makes us laugh sometimes so um, but this is part this is this is a, an expression of the racist uh, r- a racist society of Vienna of the time it is not a reflection of Mozart's personal beliefs but um, on the other hand, that In popular theater, it was something you did. Now he starts out as the uh, he's the uh, he starts out in in the good realm, but because he misbehaves constantly, uh, he is going to go off to the other side in the course of the opera. So there's going to be cultural exchange. zarastro and the temple are going to get Papageno because he's good, and the Queen of the Night is going to get Monostos because he's bad, um, and there are two uh, armed guards at the temple and then there is a person who's destined to become the wife of Papageno and her name, oddly enough, is Papagena, with an A at the end of it. Okay, made up name. Of course, she's meant to sound like a bird as well. So you've got, here's good, here's evil, and now you. And that, now there's this, the temples over here, there's the temple of nature, there's the temple of reason, there's the temple of wisdom. Uh, there are two deities. Uh, we don't hear much about the Judaic Christian god, but we do hear about Isis and Osiris. Isis and Osiris. Um, that's a man and a woman. They were married. The man, Osiris, is a god of fertility, um, got killed by his wicked brother, and then uh, Isis, his loving wife, put him back together again like Humpty Dumpty and uh, he comes to life momentarily. But they are a couple and they are adored as a couple. This is important because at the end of this opera, um, which has uh, also been criticized for some rude remarks uh, disparaging women, which is very much not Mozart's nature, um, but they found found it politically on they found it politically correct at the time. But this is important, because Mozart, who uh, I, if I had an hour and a half, I would tell you and uh, document to what degree Mozart was um, a missionary ahead of his time for the, uh, for the equality of man and woman. And he, uh, he tells his stories over and over and over again to make this point. And this one is no different, because we, we, are, we have a prince, Tamino, We have a princess, after all, Pamina is a princess because she's the daughter of the queen of the night. And they eventually are going to go through trials and tribulations as they must. And at the end, they're going to come through these and they are going to be rewarded by being allowed to marry each other. And they are going to become the new heads of the temple. In other words, they are the future. The important thing is that Tamino will not be the ruler with a wife. That Tamino and Pamina together will be the rulers in this new world. So Mozart, two m- months and five days before his death, is setting out a model f- that for the world, say, this is the way it could and it should be. Um, so uh, the inner spiritual development uh, is, is very important. That's what this opera is about underneath the laughs. You're going to laugh all night. You're going to be amused. You're going to smile. But there's a gentle spiritual message. It's all about we're all called upon to develop ourselves. Enlightenment is a big word in a development education of of young. There are adventures. There are temptations. Because it's a fairy tale, there's good and evil. Um, There's the rescue story. The prince rescues the princess. Uh, He's on a quest for spiritual enlightenment. She doesn't need any Why? Because she's a woman. She is born with wisdom. She is born more evolved than the man. Very Mozartian to believe that. Um, The man and woman will rule together as a perfect couple. Um, And now there are two levels. There's those up here. And here we see, again, contemporary society, which was aristocrats and working people. So the aristocrats are those who strive for spiritual enlightenment. Great love stories you go through from Shakespeare onward. The great love, when there's a comedy or a tragedy, a comedy, are is, are the kings, the queens, the princesses, the princes. The aristocrats are given credit for being capable of profound love, whereas the workers are very comic characters. They have, they have, uh, they have their, they have their boyfriends, their girlfriends, they have their weddings, but somehow or other they're, they're viewed as more superficial. Mozart wrote in this time and in this style. You, you'll know that for instance, Così uh, fan there's Despina, the maid. Um, there are characters in The Marriage of Figaro. In Don Giovanni, there's a noble woman, Donna Anna, a bourgeois woman, Don Elvira, and there's a peasant woman, Zerlina, and Zerlina has a uh, has a fiancé, he's Masetto. These, these levels are defined. Well, they're defined also in the magic flute, but it's Spiritual development is the quest of those aristocrats, whereas Papageno re, uh, refers to himself as a Naturmensch. I'm just a normal, natural human being. He has no interest in spiritual enlightenment, and he is brought along, and he's given every opportunity for spiritual um, uh, spiritual enlightenment. And over and over again, he says, "Nah, I'd rather have a good meal." I'd rather have a good glass of wine. And what does he pine and yearn for? All he really wants, he wants to have a wife, and he wants a wife just like him. So that's it. Wine, a meal, and a nice wife. And he couldn't care less about trials, tribulations to be a better person. He's not into insight. He's not into self-improvement. He, he thinks he's fine as he is. And he is. The, uh, I mean, the amazing thing is all of us love... Papageno, because I think on some level, we all recognize ourselves in Papageno, or we, we recognize a part of ourselves. Now, it's been said that, that Mozart was an, embodied, um, an embodiment both of Tamino and Papageno. There is no question that Mozart was a deeply spiritual individual, and not only that, that he was able to write stories and music on a, on a deeply transcendent and profound level about what? About the human spirit, about the um, uh, the cosmic spirit. So he was a very serious individual, so he strove for enlightenment. But at the same time, Mozart loved just a good life. He loved wine, he loved to eat, he loved to joke around. Um, I think he liked women. Uh, he was, and that part of him, that is a part. You've seen Amadeus? How many of you have seen Amadeus? Too many. <laughs> okay. All right. So Amadeus is a wonderful movie. It's great, and it was like a wonderful play, which I saw on Broadway, which is which is great, too. But I don't think you need to believe that portrait of Mozart 100%. I mean, he was made to look like some kind of bad boy who just had no social managers, man- manners or graces, and he liked to use dirty words and... You know, there's, some, there's, there's a grain of truth in all of that, uh, but it's, it's a movie, right? But there is a grain of truth, and that grain of truth is that both Papageno and Tamino can be found within the, within the character of Tamino and Papageno and Mozart. Um, the Magic Flute is about symbolic union of separated elements, matter and spirit, masculine feminine, deity and religion. Um, Sarastro is coming from an ancient Persian religion, Which uh, is all about good and evil. Uh, And he is an enlightened, he is the embodiment of a wise enlightenment person and leader. Uh, The role of Papageno, as I mentioned, was written for the producer of this, a popular. Zingspiel, his name was Emmanuel Schikaneder, and he sang Papageno. You will notice that the vocal range of Papageno is very simple. It's simple folk-like music. It doesn't have to go very high, it doesn't have to go very low, because Schikaneder was not really a, a singer. He was definitely not an opera singer, and he probably maybe wasn't even a good singer. But, so that's why he gets a simple, simple p- vocal line. On the other extent, um, how many of you have heard, at least heard, the, the Queen of the Night? You know, with all of those high notes, she, on the other hand, is uh, transplanted from the Italian opera, with all the vocal fireworks that one expects, and Mozart utilized in his Italian uh, in his Italian operas. Now, uh, now we get to some music here. First thing I said: okay, there's no recitatives in this opera. This is a recitative. Maybe this will sound familiar. Okay. so this is in Italian. It's the marriage of Figaro. Cosi fan tutte, Don Giovanni. Those are the Italian operas in Italian, and they utilize recitative. You hear the cembalo or the harpsichord in the background, very discreet, (laughs) just keeping them on pitch. You're not going to hear any of them tonight. There are no recitatives. That's because, as I said, Mozart wrote this work, this Singspiel, without recitatives. What he did write is this. He wrote dialogues. Here are the dialogues. And the original had hours and hours and hours of dialogues. Now, two things. You're not going to hear any of that either. Because dialogues are a big problem. First of all, opera singers aren't usually very good at them. Plus, and this is the second question is, what are you going to do in a big opera house when you're supposed to be whispering a dialogue? You can't. You have to shout it. So they tend to become uh, monotonous in that sense. And then there's always the problem of, unless you're dealing with native-born singers who are German-speaking, uh, they're all tripping over, their German, and you're hearing accents and all of that. Dialogues are a big problem. So the director, Barry Kowski, whom you've seen the La Boheme now, you've just seen it, he's one of the most brilliant directors um, in the world today. He got the idea, we're going to get rid of all of the dialogues and we're going to tell the story a different way. So those of you who are seeing the Magic Flute for the first time, or seeing an opera for the first time, this is not the way the Magic Flute is usually. So what's going to happen is where there were dialogues, um, you're going to hear uh, a pianoforte, thats the predecessor of the no, of the modern piano—playing mo- uh, m- music by Mozart. It's from a fantasy, fa- fa- fan- fantasy for piano, and he's going to fill in those those uh, the, those big gaps where the dialogues were. But how are you going to know the story? You're not going to know the story. Yes, you are going to know the story, because the conceit of this uh, production is that it is a silent movie, and so the dialogue will be, put, will be on a screen just the way it used to be in the silent movies. And you'll see characters that will be reminiscent of uh, silent movie characters. Most of all, uh, Papageno is a Buster Keaton type of character. So the idea here is you're going to get the story told to you by reading the uh, texts that are selected, just to give you the general idea of what you're going, to, you're going to hear. It now, so that means no dialogue, no recitatives. Now, I want you to hear something. Who is that? What's that? It's Papa. Technical accident. Uh, That's Papageno. Papageno has these little pipes. And that's how he calls his birds. And that's how he catches them. So anytime you hear that, you know that Papageno's in the neighborhood. Now let's get serious for a moment. And we'll talk about the Masonic issues and the overture. Now there's an overture. This happens before the action starts. That is standard fare for a lot of operas up until the middle of the Uh, the next century, the 19th century. And Mozart, of course, wrote great overtures, and this is one of the greatest overtures. Now, he writes it with a very solemn introduction and then a fast part, and that's also standard practice. Solemn opening, fast, 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 brilliant, 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 Um, a first theme, a second theme, a first theme repeated, a second theme repeated, an ending, which is called a coda, and it's loud, and you should applaud. Okay. You can applaud tonight, we we welcome that, Uh, but there's a trick. Don't applaud in the middle of the overture because because Mozart throws us a curve. He actually brings the overture to an apparent ending and he inserts nine chords, three times three, solemn chords which are a Masonic, which is a sign of its Masonic roots. Now, let's start with the beginning. You may need to turn that down, I think, because this is a loud track. Okay, this is the, this is the solemn opening. So that, it tells us, even this very popular audience, who are not sophisticated, there's there's some majestic thing that's gonna go on. Now, let me tell you about the symbols. The number three is an important symbol for the Masons. I don't know why, but it is, by the way, an important symbol in most religions and most mythologies. Um, uh, So, no surprise, the number three is a big deal. I'm going to point it out every time there is something that's three, and you can count them yourselves and you'll notice by yourselves, because the entire evening is Replete with this symbol being everywhere. And it starts right at the beginning. We hear three big chords. One. Two. Three. Agreed. Now I'm going to tell you also the number five is important. I don't know why, it is. Now, it's three chords, but they're really five chords. Listen carefully. One. Two, three. Four, five. Mozart, Mozart simultaneously gives us two important symbolic numbers, presumably recognizable by the Masons in the audience. Now, in the middle of the overture, we're going to hear this three. Three for a second time. And three for a third time So you'll hear now you'll hear that there are no strings, there's no percussion. That is because it was the woodwind instruments and the uh, brass instruments were an important part of Maso- of Masonic uh, practices. Now the overture starts with a fugue. That means every instrument is going to play the same music, chasing itself around like... My own personal belief is that it represents the trials that Tamino and Pamina will have to go through at the end of the opera. And it (laughs) will... I can't get this right. One, two, three... One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So you see the handiwork of this incredible composer. Uh, He could do anything. You say the number three to him, he could find in ways that you'd never guess it. You wouldn't think about it. You don't think about it, but it's all there. And the most important thing now is the key, the tonality in which it's written. Now, if you've studied music, you'll know what, you'll, you'll, you'll recognize this right away. If you didn't, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, it's in the key of E flat. Why did he choose the key of E flat? You know there are sharps and flats it, because it has three flats, clear as a bell. An E-flat all night long is going to represent something Masonic, and there's going to be a lot of it. Now, when the opera starts, it starts in C minor, because the prince is running away from the dragon, and C minor also has three flats. Now I'll move ahead. Then there's Papageno. Papageno has a lot of his music in G major, because the lower classes, or the working class. It's a key that Mozart associates with the popular mentality. He's a jolly fellow, you can hear that. When Tamino sees the portrait of Pamina, he falls in love with the portrait. He says, this is, this picture is beautiful, and you're gonna hear one, two, you hear those woodwind chords three times. Here's another one. One, two, three. Here's another one. One, two, three. One, two. So it's all over the place, all right. Now, here's our Queen of the Night, and we're gonna like her at first. She's gonna tell us a very sad story, so she tells it in G minor. That's a key that Mozart loves when he wants to express painful, sorrowful, sad emotions. She's going to tell a sad story to this Tamino. She's going to say, my daughter was stolen from me, and I, and I she's in the hands of a wicked man. That's, that's why I am sad. Now, is that true? Yes. Is it true that the man is wicked? It's going to turn out maybe not so. But the important thing is, is she manipulating Tamino? or is it sincere, we don't know the difference, nor does Tamino, okay? Now, when she's all done with that, come the fireworks. She says, you are going to go and save her. And this is the first of two famous arias by the Queen of the Night. acrobats here. We all sweat. She's going up. She goes. All over us. Is she going to make it or not? Some make it. Some don't. Some nights they make it. Some nights they don't. So if you go and save her, she's yours forever. Now, Papageno told a lie. <laughs> so the three ladies have... <laughs> They've put a lock on his mouth, and he can't talk. Now, later on, Pamina is going to meet Papageno, and they are going to sing all about love. Are they in love? No, they are not. This is, but they are two pure spirits. Pamina is enlightened but all by herself. Papageno, he's not enlightened, but he has a wonderful heart. And, and they're going to say, they're going to, they're going to tell the philosophy that life is completed when man and woman are together, they are united, and all good is going to come from that. And, of course, it's in E-flat, because this is all about a Masonic concept. Mann und Weib, that's German for man and wife, or man and woman. And man and uh, woman, woman and man, together are going to be godlike. In other words, this is the gods of the Christian Judaic world are slightly out with the Enlightenment. They're saying we can be like gods if we are moral and we love each other and we have uh, we have uh, friend friendship and loving lives. We're going to be just like the gods. Okay, now. This is, this is a long recitative. I said there wouldn't be any. I sort of told you, it's not a fib exactly, but there is one, and it's with the orchestra. And it's extended. It goes on for five, six, seven minutes. This is looking into the future. This is what's going to happen in the course of the 19th century, that there are going to be discussions. The harpsichord cembalo is going to disappear, and the orchestra is going to participate in these discussions. Now we can... Tamino is going to meet the speaker from the temple and he's gonna say, I'm coming here because Zarastro's a bad man and I'm gonna go get him and I'm gonna get Pamina." But the m- magical moment when the speaker appears. Now he's not gonna appear, you're just gonna hear him in this production. And he says, where are you going, young man? Where are you going, young man? And what are you seeking here in this holy place? And he says, well, he reveals it. He said, he's very impetuous. He says, I'm going to uh, rescue Pamino, who is imprisoned here. And, this, and the speaker is going to say, no, uh, not so fast. Why do you want to do that? And he says, well, Zarastra's a bad man. He says, really? Who who told you that? So the speaker is going to challenge Tamino, not by fighting with him, not by being pugilistic, not by insulting, insulting him and saying bad things. He's going to ask questions. He's going to keep asking Tamino questions that are going to challenge Tamino. And since Tamino is intelligent and he actually wants to learn, he's going to be troubled by these questions, but he's going to learn from them. And when he gets out of there and he figures out that Pamina is there and he can uh, he can uh, perhaps save her, he takes out what the title of the opera is all about, the magic flute. He's been given a flute by the three ladies, which if he gets into trouble, he just plays that. In this way, he becomes like Orpheus. Um, significant that he's not given a sword like as in the Wagnerian operas he's not given uh, a tank or a hand grenade or something so when you get into trouble you just use this it's a far more civilized idea create make music make poetry and with music poetry art, thought kindness you're going to make a better world Papageno has been given magic bells now if Papageno had been the primary character, we'd call this opera The Magic Bells. But Papageno isn't. It's Tamino, we call it The Magic Flute. But he too, when he gets into a jam, he can use these, these bells. Now, when the act one curtain falls, Sarastro comes in, and we get the second important tonality, which is C major which represents the sun and enlightenment because Zarastro is a sun religion. It's a religion about the sun. And the chorus is going to sing the praises of Zarastro in C major, which makes it the other pole, E flat, masonry, C major, enlightenment, and these two keys are going to interact with each other all night long. There's a wonderful symphony called the Jupiter Symphony. It's Mozart's Last Symphony, 41st Symphony, which our orchestra will be performing. We're going to Palm Deserts on Tuesday night to do it. And this is almost identical to it. Mozart's last symphonies are written in what keys? E-flat, C major, and G minor. Three, th- uh, The two main keys of tonight's opera and G minor, which is there, of course, for very, two very important moments. Now, um, the... I could have talked less, I could have played more music, I could have but I couldn't get everything done as I, as I always would like to. I think in the end you don't really need to hear much music because the music speaks for itself and you're going to understand everything by just opening yourself up to this to this wonderful music, and it's going to tell you all the emotions. You'll know when to be happy, you'll know when to be sad, you'll know when to be scared, you'll know when somebody's evil, you'll know when somebody's good, because Mozart is a genius. So just get into that and love all of that, and we'll hope you will come back again, not just to the magic flute, but to everything. Thank you so much. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.